boredom and the authentic collective. The term, Heidegger's politics, initially indicates that a young Roman Catholic intellectual from the post-First World War era, marked by his origins in the countryside and his academic studies, participated in a great event in the history of mentalities, which I have suggested we call the quote-unquote apocalypse of the real. This event obviously began long before 1918. We could even say that it became acute after Hegel's death, when, in a quarrel over the master's legacy, a metaphysical left was formed, which aimed to popularise philosophy's profoundest mystery. The young Hegelian's overt rejection of religion divulged the best-kept secret of ancient wisdom to a bourgeois audience. The esoteric realisation that neither God nor gods exist, and that the only true world is the actual one we live in, yet fail to properly recognise, because our gaze tends to overlook reality in favour of the transcendental. For millennia, the masses, and those who were educated but naive, allowed themselves to believe that this supposedly true world was to be found in a higher beyond. But now it was time for the real to reclaim the true. Against this backdrop, post-idealists could make a realism from below the order of the day. The names of the four, quote-unquote, disangelists, as they were called by Eugen Rosenstock Huesi, Marx, Darwin, Nietzsche, Freud, designate the most important positions of the young realist literature of exposure. When these authors speak of material production, human animality, the will to power, and the masks of the libido, they teach modern minds to believe in the omnipotence and omnipresence of a reality that is built from the bottom up and is indeed always built so that subtler superstructures remain more or less directly dependent on massive underlying forces. Physiologists, pragmatists, and anthropologists are teachers of descent and retrocent. They indulge in doctrines of origins and lines of descent, in genealogies that deem us to have come from hirsute ancestors, and forms of pragmatism that bring us down from false heights. The goal is always to reach the terra firma of facts and forces that establish the new era's authority. The reality of what is real will henceforth be derived from bodies, money and the will to power, as well as the movements drawn from these fundamental forces. Perhaps we should trace the quote-unquote apocalypse of the real back to the French Revolution, because after the long Christian intermission, we once again find a pragmatism clan clad in neo-Roman fashion as Europe's prevailing modus vivendi. Its occult centre was the naturalistic esotericism of the Marquis de Sade, for whom the ultimate truth of pleasure-giving matter is only revealed to uncommonly free spirits, who are willing to become media of nature by professing crime as the most advanced technique for happiness. There is no need to explain why the great majority of new realists avoided such excesses, even if they aspired to be quote-unquote radical. What nevertheless links them to decide is the basic anthropological view that human beings, as creatures of desire, need help to achieve their worldly satisfaction. It is not our task here to explain in detail how Heidegger became associated with this young realist trend. 
We need not concern ourselves with a young scholastic's transformation into a young radical. Biographers have pointed to the deep impression that the works of Luther and Kierkegaard made upon the Catholic Heidegger during the First World War. In addition, it seems certain that he benefits from reading Dostoevsky in the 1920s, and borrowed certain motifs such as anxiety and boredom from him. For us, it is enough to note that the entirety of Heidegger's early work, when he left behind his ecclesiastical and scholastic origins, is permeated by a quite idiosyncratic pathos that is both extreme and yet in keeping with the times. He is never closer to the creative source of his conceptual power than when he maps out his exodus from the pseudo-eternity of scholastic knowledge into the turbulent temporality of contemporary existence an existence entirely lived out beneath the dim light of its own bewilderment. That's losigkeit and restlessness. Rastlosigkeit and Ratlosigkeit. While engaged in this project, Heidegger develops a powerful explicitness that is a striking proof of his genius. The term, quote-unquote, existence, seem to offer a powerful, cutting-edge awareness of time from early on, because the young realist notion of existence displays a counter-transcendent turbulence, and because it pursues de-eternalization with great dedication, coming down from the derealized heights of disinterested theory, intent on merging with the present moment, in the sense of Lenin's quote-unquote becoming concrete. It is impelled by its own momentum to affirm its belonging to the onward rush of time. The pathos of detranscendence, ent jenseitigung, leads to a heroic disquietism, a feature that not only marks the culminating phrase, phase of Heidegger's thought, but is also a prominent characteristic of European philosophy and artistic work between the world wars. A thinker who wishes to become the medium of his avant-garde work and transforms into the mouthpiece of an apocalypse of the real embraces his quote-unquote own time in two ways. First, he declares himself ready to be pervaded by the epoch's unrest. Second, he sinks into a solitary disquiet that emanates from an awareness of his own mortality. What makes an existence exposed to this disquiet unique is thus marked by two exercises in expropriation. The first happens through a loss of a firm standpoint, toward or outside of the flux of time, a loss that is affirmed since realism requires that we flow along with such time. The second comes into play with the thinker's acquiescence in a protracted final self-expropriation that will result in his death. In the course of this self-appropriation, the avant-garde philosopher exchanged the bourgeois academic self with its motto of, quote, I think, therefore I am, I know I exist for as long as I think, end quote, for an artistic heroic self with its attitude of, quote, I am dying but not right at this moment and want to do something that I deem thought-provoking, end quote. As the earlier young realists of the 19th century had helped engineer the apocalypse of labour and animality, Heidegger, in his own stormy young realist period, distinguished himself by his apocalypse of existential temporality, in which the meaning of existence is disclosed above all from the standpoint of being toward death. 
admittedly, Heidegger struggled to convincingly relate the individual temporalization of being toward death and the completion of the period of time before death by a project that necessarily includes me to the collective temporalization of the individual's membership and historic collectives roused to act. Simply put, his thought begins with precisely this problem, an approach that can with some justification be called quote-unquote Heidegger's politics. Here we are only ever concerned with the question of how I, the individual who has been thrown into a tumultuous world, or held into nothingness, quote-unquote transition from lapsing into my own death, from my death span, to the life's work of an overarching collective world history. The discoverer of the equivalence between being and time is forced into this kind of transition, because he could not limit the existentialization, one could even say the ecstatic qualification, of being and time to individuals. In this regard, being and time has merely a preparatory function, as has often been noted. Yet how to think the history of existence as inclusion in a history of being, even how the latter is even to be conceptualised as something that was by no means clear to Heidegger at that time. In order to make the same decisive opening move, to qualify temporality with the self-enactment or quote-unquote project of an ecstatic existence, when thinking through transpersonal historical processes, it was necessary to identify a complex or a collective that would be able to bear a central temporalization on a large scale. This would have to be a collective, in other words a cultural complex, whose actual existence made it possible to carry out a massively indefensible and undeniable historical task. Having read Dilthey, who pioneered the critique of historical reason, Heidegger knew why the transition from a time of individuals to world time could not be directly implemented. Such a transition can only ever be accomplished indirectly. This is because an individual autobiographical kind of knowing, which illuminates one's own life story as a quote-unquote context that understands and projects itself, inherently has the potential for such a transition. In contrast, no single person can experience, recount, and plan for world history as his or her own biography. One would have to be the world spirit to intuit the whole of being as it has unfolded through history into its current state. Thus it was necessary to find another route to the key process of trans-individual history. As is well known, Heidegger tries out a number of quite distinct, even contradictory positions and formulations for determining the bearer of collective temporality. Beginning with the German people's time of awakening and upheaval, to the ripening time of the artwork, which constructs a world, all the way to the quiet countryside's waiting time, which looks forward to a new revelation, or a final god, a god whose manifestation, or quote-unquote passing by, for Beingang, will bring the series of apocalypses here below to an end. In each case, Heidegger tries to bridge both qualitative temporalities. If they are to be linked, they must form a plausible passage from the existential temporality of the individual, who has been appointed to die his or her own death, and who has constructive, responsible work to do in advance of this, to a collective's ontological temporality, 
which is needed for bringing about or preserving a historical truth or a world formative work. We will note right away that this transition is ironic. To be sure, existential ontology has made it unmistakably clear that individual mortality has a peculiar temporal structure, which, precisely as existential, distinguishes it from physical and cosmological time, as well as from capitalist time, Toto Coelho, no matter the particular civilizing situation. Even modern medicine has yet to make very great strides in increasing the natural lifespan. Yet, whether similarly clear results will emerge from the temporal structure of historical complexes and collectives remains to be determined. It remains an entirely open question whether further historical missions or quote-unquote movements can be formed under all circumstances, or whether quote-unquote history as a whole might not have come to an end along with the tasks assigned by it. Who can rule out the possibility that history might at some point transition to another phase that would again be closer to the cyclical temporalities of natural and economic processes than to being tensely stretched to the end in existential linear fashion? Should this happen, we would lose the quote-unquote objective pole of temporal occurrence and the transition we are looking for the passage from individual to collective time, would no longer have its bridgehead on the other shore. In what follows, I would like to argue that all of Heidegger's logical and political troubles are in fact connected to the decline of the public and collective pole of essential temporality. As early as 1928, he recognised that present-day humans cannot even be sure that they are still living in quote-unquote history, however much they are convinced that they will always be mortal. My claim is that the master of Todneberg discovered his own version of the quote-unquote end of history, or at least the possibility of its end, as Alexander Kohef did, uh, also did a short while afterwards, and I will indicate how he tried to avoid the consequences of this discovery. If something like quote-unquote Heidegger's politics really exists, then it would initially refer to the fact that he was a very unconventional participant in the young realist exodus from the captivation of old Europe by metaphysics, as we've already pointed out. If we recall that philosophy has always aspired to expose the reality of the real and to conceptually articulate it, we can better understand why modern thought must embrace this mission more explicitly than ever before. With unprecedented ferocity it enters the battle over realism that is just getting underway. Heidegger's avant-garde temporological realism turns out to be more radical than its competitors, because with his unwavering view that existence is being toward death, he restored time's position as mistress of being in motion, which had otherwise been completely downplayed and marginalised had indeed been intentionally denied and humiliated by thought's preference for eternity. A sovereign consigner of fates and a stern transmuter of things, time was thrust into the role of that which is most real of all. Indeed, even all-consuming time, the fury of destruction, now appeared to be even more tragically dark than in Hegel's talk of history as Calvary. Initially, because of time's authority, only the role of a heroic accomplice was open to the philosopher. 
what he calls resolute existence, Zusich Entschlossener Design, designates a way of knowing how to be consumed and transmuted. Yet because, as we have seen, existential time cannot be reduced to the span between the not-yet-now and the terminal now of our own death, Heidegger's task is to reconstruct a collective temporality superordinate to, and yet integrating, one's own suspension before death. The very time of quote-unquote history, from which it is supposed to follow that history does not merely prove to be the transmuter and destroyer of individuals and generations, but also a creator and a project manager, and even the vessel for a wide-ranging eventuation of truth, Wahrheitsgeschehen, his later conception of the quote-unquote history of being, Seinsgeschichte, helps articulate this desideratum. It is a testimony to Heidegger's conceptual creativity during his most advanced lucid phase, which should probably not be dated much past 1930, when he began to work on a dramatic ontology of reality after the conclusion of being and time. Heidegger discovered a striking feature of any present moment in time, which he went on to call moods, Stimmungen. A mood is a vat for dying, into which existence is immersed, so to speak. Readers note, dying as in clothes die, not a dying as in death. I thought it was important to clarify that, giving all of the speech of death that we've just had. A mood is a vat for dying, into which existence is immersed, so to speak, and indeed so early on, in such a pervasive manner, and in anticipation of everything further, that the mood that is here absorbed will preemptively anticipate any other object that later appears to be objectively given. Anything later encountered as a single object, state of affairs or situation, can only come to light tinged by the operative anticipatory mood. Anyone who wishes to address human beings more profoundly than was typical in traditional philosophy and its development into enlightenment must start at the pre-objective level and there begin to work on moods. This also brings us close to the great pole of historical eventuation, since only a mood can shed light on the state of history, though not on its course and its goal. In discovering the topic of moods, Heidegger was... Uh, in discovering the topic of moods, Heidegger, the academic philosopher, changes into Heidegger, the metapolitical clinician. Or, more precisely, he changes into a psychagogue and trainer, whose main task is to prepare his patients for treatment by drawing attention to their most extreme and deepest-rooted preconceptions of existence as a whole, their existential moods. The procedure is based on the quasi-homeopathic principle that patients' symptoms must be intensified to paroxysm before a crisis begins about, uh, brings about an end or a recovery. To put it bluntly, his diagnosis is that contemporary human beings suffer from a generalised diffuseness, a malady that manifests itself in the incapacity to be really convinced by anything accompanied by the tendency to follow every public uproar and lend an ear to all manner of nonsense. In his new Discourse on Moods, Heidegger discovers the ontological version of hyperactivity and multiple personality disorder, as it were, with a rather 
cursory way to characterise the significance of his findings. Ultimately, moods are only philosophically important because they articulate the first positive link between the individual's being in his own time and his being in the epoch. First, moods build the bridge, or at least provide support for a possible bridge, from the individual to the collective, insofar as moods well up in a group of people existing at the same time. Second, they provide an orientation that precedes all theory, as well as every thou shalt, Zolan, insofar as moods are supposed to imply a deepening of prescriptive guidelines from what is quote-unquote merely logically and ethically evident to what is pervasively evident in an existential sense. In other words, to become gripped, ergriffenheit. The term, quote-unquote, being gripped, which becomes more significant for Heidegger beginning in the late 1920s, refers to how we are supposed to conceive of an existence that is carried away by the pole of being. Being, consciously overcome by a mood, or being gripped, is knowing how to submit, as it were, to what a situation makes evident, something that can be traced from the past into the future. By 1928-29, Heidegger begins to believe that his work on the temporalization of being by the world pole has advanced far beyond the preliminary achievements of being in time. He now has a conceptual framework that allows him to offer a promising articulation of existence in the collective space-time complex of the present. Tellingly, it always comes down to concepts that can describe how we inhabit a drab epoch. The first items to be discussed in his own present day are emptiness, boredom, ambiguity, and a dearth of actual events. If we consider Heidegger's formulations at the end of the 1920s to be fundamental for characterising the collective milieu, he would have to be considered the genuine discoverer and author of the history of post-histoire, his descriptions of inauthentic existence in the notorious Das Mann chapter of Being in Time, as well as his analyses of boredom from the Grundbegriffe lectures, leave no doubt that we are presented with a superlative diagnosis of time. This diagnosis charts the existential disposition, Befindlichkeit, of human beings who have lost any meaningful history. Heidegger, the philosophizing young realist, teaches that anyone who exists today is confronted with sheer facticity and ends up in the quote-unquote haziness, Diesekite, of being as a whole. In what follows, we can draw on the observations that Heidegger shared in his lecture course during the winter semester of 1929-30, titled the fundamental concepts of metaphysics, world, finitude, solitude. This lecture course undoubtedly forms the most fascinating advertisement for philosophy since Boethius. At that time, it contains a quite daunting account of the reasons why Heidegger's contemporaries will in all likelihood be unable to come close to undertaking what has been advertised without fear and trembling. A dictum of Novalis, which Heidegger approvingly cites, reveals the reason why such an undertaking is virtually impossible in present-day philosophy. Quote, philosophy is really a homesickness, an urge to be at home everywhere. End quote. According to Heidegger, philosophy's urgent basis has been completely undermined 
because the contemporary way of life wishes for nothing more than the ubiquitous production of relaxation and satisfaction. Thus emerges the progressive human being, without homesickness, who, quote, has raised some mediocre aspect of himself to the status of a god, end quote. Under these circumstances, the new introduction to philosophy is condemned to make a strategic detour in order to first restore the human capacity for the basic metaphysical mood, which can only happen by sending human beings to a preschool of the uncanny. This evocative therapy constitutes the lecture course's second stage, which may well have lasted until the run-up to Christmas 1929. This scathing opening salvo sets the stage for a psychagogic manoeuvre that for the first time can be reasonably called quote-unquote Heidegger's politics, although the term quote-unquote Heidegger's exercise, exercitium, would be more apt. Anyone wishing to hear emphasise this procedure's implicitly political, or even better, pre-political or proto-political dimension would have to speak of a politics of awakening, though we have to be careful regarding the connotations of such a term. What is supposed to be roused is the opposite of a political impulse. The philosophical wake-up call, quote-unquote, existence arise, has nothing to do with typical wake-up calls for mobilising national or proletarian might. From paragraph 16 of his lecture course on, Heidegger is devoted to awakening a philosophical mood that does not aim to reveal the identity of something latently or manifestly resent at hand, to provide the identity of a collective resentment or of a national pride, for instance, but to, quote, let whatever is sleeping become wakeful, end quote. Reader's note. I now realise that I said paragraph 16, but it could be lecture 16. I don't know, it's got that funny double S symbol, not the not the German double S, the one which looks like one S imposed on another. Anyway, let's get on with it. The irony of this exercise becomes evident as soon as we realise that what is here referred to as quote-unquote sleeping is not something valuable, nor is such sleeping in anyone's interests. It is a profound unease, and awakening to it is inconceivable without appealing to the courage of whoever is waking up. To awaken, Heidegger says, means to let something present, present itself anew by allowing what is, quote, in a peculiar way absent and yet there, end quote, to come into the foreground. Heidegger's conscious awareness that awakening is related to the development of a collective, and ao ipso to a proto-political procedure, is revealed by his cautious use of the pronouns quote-unquote we and quote-unquote us. Quote, the question immediately arises as to which mood we are to awaken or let become wakeful in us. A mood that pervades us fundamentally? Who then are we? What do we mean here in referring to us End quote. Are we speaking of ourselves as academics, as agents in the history of ideas, as concerned parties in a German, 
a Western, or even in a wider sense, a European event. From this moment on, Heidegger evidently recognises that, in future, philosophy must become a discussion of our situation. Lagerbesprechung. If we grant this, then it stands to reason that previous contributions by others in interpreting the situation would be cited in an expedient and collegial manner. With animated abstraction, Heidegger brings order to supposed chaos differently than Karl Jaspers, who mainly emphasises the impossibility of gaining an overview of the situation. In his 1931 overview of Die Geistige Situation der Zeit, translation, The Spiritual Condition of the Age, published two years later, four main positions are to be distinguished at present, according to Heidegger. First, that of Oswald Spengler, whose thesis in The Decline of the West essentially diagnoses the decline of a life that had been lived in and through spirit, yet does so in such a way that this decline is to be accepted with a stoic attitude and lived through as unavoidable fate. A similar diagnosis is offered by the next position, that of Ludwig Klages, whose slogan, Return to Life, advocated the liberation of spirit, Third, we have the position of the later Max Scheller, who preferred to view present-day humans as having already reached an era of balance between life and spirit. Finally, we come to the position of Leopold Ziegler, who proclaimed an imminent new Middle Ages that would end the opposition of spirit and life. Heidegger does not fail to note that all four positions are rooted in Nietzsche, in Nietzsche's account of the antagonism between the Apollonian and the Dionysian. He brushes aside these majestic attempts to define our situation by objecting that their authors were talking past the actual condition of contemporary human beings. He thought that they had missed and failed to grasp the fundamental mood of an epoch's operative we because their statements, quote-unquote, do not attack us, but merely provide superficial views of who we are. Cultural diagnoses and grand prognoses of this kind merely provide a snapshot of us strolling like passers-by along a broad avenue on which the drama of world history is supposedly being acted out. According to Heidegger, such philosophy exhausts itself in presentation and observation, Darstellung und Feststellung, without ever getting through to Dasein, existence or quote-unquote being there. Such philosophy speaks, quote-unquote, from where we stand, and forgets to ask, quote, how do things stand with us, end quote. All of these inspired and interesting philosophies, which confer grandiose roles upon us in world history, relieve us of ourselves by scripting us into a scenario in which we find ourselves very interesting without having to understand ourselves. But why do we need to make ourselves interesting in this way? Heidegger asks the question, suggestively, and goes on to answer it himself. Because in the core of our existence, we feel that we are empty, not wholly convinced of anything, and not really gripped by anything either. When we hearken to the authentic, fundamental mood of our time in our own existence, we become profoundly bored with ourselves and with our circumstances. 
the fundamental feature of our age, which marks us most profoundly is the absence of every authoritative orientation. We are paradoxically gripped by the fact that nothing that tries to take hold of us really grips us. Awakening to boredom means grasping what it means to not be gripped as such. According to Heidegger, we live in an age where nothing is evident. That is, we live in an age that lacks an authoritative purpose. The arrow of history has overshot its mark and vanished into a post-historical haze. What remains is a confused mixture of agitation and indifference. At bottom, historical time is already at a standstill, and its standstill is reflected in our existential mood. We thus end up with a bizarre definition of the age's real collective. To begin with, it consists exclusively of a few honest and bold contemporaries who give our profound boredom the chance to survive to surface in our consciousness. That boredom that we have long felt, even if only in an inauthentic way. The psychagogue Heidegger can initially only invoke this collective of the heroes of boredom with a lyrical question. Quote, Have things ultimately gone so far with us that a profound boredom draws back and forth like a silent fog in the abysses of design? End quote. Or to ask this another way, are we not beings who are only strung along and ultimately remain empty? regardless of everything that happens with us or through us, do we not, quote-unquote, ultimately feel condemned to pass the time, since no matter how far we look, we can see no project that seizes hold of us, engages us, and carries us away? These are initially just rhetorical questions, meant to be affirmed, even though an ontological second wind will be speculated about afterwards. When this second wind sets in, such admissions are downgraded into preparatory exercises for more serious and positive things. By affirmatively replying to such questions, we de facto enter our epoch's essential collective, which is yet to assemble. This collective consists of those who, at present, have not been effectively gripped by an imperative necessity. We may only authentically say, we quote-unquote we, for the first time when we include ourselves in this collective of the essentially and knowingly ungripped. We meet in the silent fog of our constitutive assembly. The historical avant-garde consists of those who are honest enough to admit to each other that history no longer speaks to them. In this way, what was referred to above as the building of a bridge between the existential temporality of mortal individuals and the historical temporality of a collective that shares the same mood can finally be achieved. The individual resolved for him or herself, who preserves his or her resolute mortal cogito, from now on can join an authentic collective. They can be recognised as sokii by the fact that they have woken up to feel the mood of their deadly, boring existence, or better, they have been subjected to the quote, strange or almost insane demand not to let boredom fall asleep, end quote. It is not enough to merely realise this. We need to also recognise how bizarre it is. 
the anonymous collective of the truly and profoundly bored is the prototype for a collective that in a short while later will be encapsulated by quote-unquote national socialism. As was to be expected, this encapsulation fell apart relatively quickly. Thus a second, less embarrassing encapsulation soon had to be attempted. It is obvious that we cannot identify those who are aware that they are bored with a nation, neither with the Germans nor any other people. Epochal boredom does not fit the pattern of a national mood, but is rather a kind of world mood, though a philosophically inclined nation such as the Germans or perhaps even the Russians might well be more open to this feeling of boredom than others. Those who bear this boredom form an authentic avant-garde that is called upon to advance into the new and unfamiliar. What is most unfamiliar is admitting to ourselves that we are only still connected to the grand narrative of history to the extent that we feel that history no longer has anything to say to us. In particular, this means that we accustom ourselves to orienting a specific present moment that exists within a greater present time to the characteristic features of not being convinced and not being gripped. There is every indication that an avant-garde of being with history at the end here took shape, an unstable avant-garde admittedly, which, due to its untenable position, was condemned to regress to some form of ploughing ahead with history. Having said this, we can now consider the odd question of how this quasi-metaphysical avant-garde international of the empty soon afterwards took on the features of a national movement that was officially represented in the Berlin Reichstag by a party that rhetorically mixed populism and socialism and violently disseminated their message.